Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is Chandran Kutharas, who is the Lee Kong Chang Chair in Political Science and the Dean of Social Scientists at Singapore Management University. Chandra is an Australian, but he's also worked in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and here in Australia. Chandran, welcome to the program. Thank you, uh, Rob. Nice to be here. Have you always been a supporter of liberalism? I think yes. Of course, it's not easy to, uh, to account for when I first came to these views, and certainly for a long time, certainly when I was in high school, I didn't really know the term. Uh, and for a while, I thought I would like to become a Marxist. Uh, and uh, even in my early days at university, I think I thought I would end up being a Marxist historian of, of one sort or another. But looking back, I can see that all of my intellectual and philosophical commitments and orientations were essentially liberal. I just didn't know the, the terminology. Uh, I thought that I might have been a Marxist because the theory sounded cool. Uh, and some of the commitments of it to human equality and uh, you know, the, the prosperity and future of the world you know, looked like they were compelling ideas that I needed to get to know. But as I studied, uh, I think I discovered that I was really a liberal. Can you say what it was about Marxism, as you got closer to it, that you realised that although it was promising good things, it was not the way forward? Well, it really happened in my last year at university. I was primarily a history uh, major. I ended up doing combined honours in history and political science. And I planned to go on to, to write history, but basically fell in love with political theory in, in that last year. Uh, when I studied political theory that year, we took a course in political science methodology, and I was introduced to the to the ideas of Karl Popper, who was, at least in some parts of his work, uh, a critic of Marxism, primarily on methodological view, uh, um, foundations. My history class was run by a couple of uh, professors who were very sympathetic to Marx and Marxism as a way of studying history. I wouldn't say they were Marxists themselves necessarily, but I was one of the few people in, in the class who knew Marx and Marxism quite well, having read a lot uh, in political theory in the political science department. But after I read Popper, I started to become much more critical of it as a doctrine for methodological purposes. I suddenly started seeing the idea of, uh, of a philosophy of history is just implausible, or the idea that there were philosophical trends mm. or historical um, developments that could be predicted is simply. You're thinking mistaken. perhaps of. I concluded oh. it was a kind of functional explanation mm. that didn't work. And that more or less killed off my, my budding Marxism. Well, I, I'm a great fan. I'm a great fan of Popper as well, actually. And I think he's poverty uh -huh. historicism and the open society yes. and its, and its yes. enemies. Those are the two works that, yeah. that shaped yeah, my. Um, my, um, I wouldn't say it was a conversion because there was nothing much there to convert in the first place. Uh, but in those days, I was a staunch uh, advocate of the Australian Labour Party. I was 
there on the steps of Parliament House in 1975 when uh, um, the Prime Minister stepped up and referred to the Governor General as, uh, uh, as someone who needed, you know, saving and uh, referred to the Prime Minister as Kerr's Kerr. And I was outraged. And uh, I think then I saw myself pretty much as a, as a good socialist, but without knowing any of the theory. But all that changed over the next couple of years. There is a saying, as I, I attributed to George Bernard Shaw, that young, if you're not a socialist as a young person, you have no heart. If you are as an older person, you have no head. I'm sure you've, you seem to have lived that, actually. Yes, I, th I think so. I mean, I'm less critical of socialism in, in, uh, in many respects than, say, I might have been at, in my um, middle age years, now that I'm in my 60s. I mean, I'm still pretty critical of it, but I, I don't think I've ever been really critical of the, the motivation of yes. socialists. I think I still share that motivation. Uh, you want the world to be a better place. You want human beings to live better. You want them to be free. And Marx, after all, was ultimately concerned mostly about human freedom. And I think that's what liberalism is about, essentially. It's about human freedom. The emphases are different and the analysis is different. But that's really what it's concerned with above all. Yes. I, I think you're making a, a good point here that um, those who want to defend liberalism are doing so because they believe it is the better way for humans to flourish, not simply as a, as, as a principle in itself. And in that, yes. they can share at least that part with others with whom they may completely disagree about the means as well, I guess. Yes. Well, the yeah. person who probably had most influence on me in this regard, uh, F.A. Hayek, you may recall dedicated his book, The Road to Serfdom, to the socialists of all parties. Uh, and essentially he thought, certainly at that time, that there was no difference uh, among liberals and socialists when it came to the objectives. The differences were uh, differences of, of method, if you like. Uh, yes. I don't think that's quite right. I think there are also substantial differences of uh, moral emphasis. And anthropology, still, and anthropology too. I think there's something in this series we've noticed that many have said that one of the essences of liberalism, it's not utopian in the way in which other, some other movements are, and therefore, in a sense, um, more, more patient and less liable to invoke, not always, of course, but less liable to invoke violent terror to achieve the liberation of human beings. Yeah, I think that's that's true. But again, with respect to socialists, for example, it does depend very much on which socialists you're talking about, because the socialist tradition is itself, like the liberal one, quite a, a broad one. And mm. you, know, you can think about those who essentially want to see the end of uh, capitalism and those who say model their thinking on the Scandinavian countries where there are very, very free markets, but quite extensive forms of uh, um, government regulation and more importantly, wealth transfer. Um, and, you know, they might see th those countries as socialists, even though I think for someone like Marx, Sweden and Denmark are anything but socialist nations. Yes, yes. It's, it's a word that suffers a kind of inflation of meaning, I suspect. My guest is Chandran Kuthahas from Singapore. Um, Chandran, what, what do you take to be the essence or the heart of, of the liberal of liberalism? Well, as I indicated before, I think it's a commitment to individual freedom. That's uh, very important. But it's also equal freedom, because unless people are all free, then what you're talking about is uh, something quite different. You may have a world, for example, in which only 
a certain race is, uh, is free or a society in which only the ruling class is free and everybody else labors, whether at worst as a slave or at best as someone subordinate. Well, I think liberalism is interested in freedom for, for everyone. So in that sense, it's an egalitarian doctrine. It's not egalitarian in every respect, and there are many uh, arguments be had there, but liberalism is essentially, I think, an argument uh, or a position that upholds individual freedom. The other way to think about it is to say that uh, liberalism, I think, arises out of a skepticism about power. And I think there are three sources of power that liberalism has attacked from the beginning. Uh, one is the, the power of the aristocracy, if you're going back to the 18th century, 19th century. The other is the, the power of the church. And the third, I think somewhat neglected nowadays, but very important, is the power of the mercantile class, the rising business class. Uh, and all of these um, elements of society exercise or wield power in order to gain advantage to themselves, whether for uh, reasons of, say, financial interest, as in the case of the mercantile class, or for reasons of dogma, as in the case of uh, some religious actors, or in the case of the aristocracy, for reasons of class interest. I think liberalism is characterized by uh, a skepticism about all forms of power. And I think that's why liberals, unlike socialists, are wary of the idea of trying to address um, privilege and power by creating a greater power to, mm. to rule over them. And that's why I think liberals are ultimately very skeptical about the state. I wanna come back to those three because I suspect in different forms, those three still exist today as, as, as threats to human liberty. Before I ask that, ask that question, can I go to the more sort of fundamental one? What led you to believe that it was this kind of approach to individual human freedom that is best for human flourishing? Well, I didn't have a fully formed uh, theoretical understanding till till quite late on in my career. And I suspect that unless you actually devote yourself to this task, you, you wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So I guess your question is really about what were the kinds of instincts uh, I yes. had. And uh, I think those instincts were essentially a kind of wariness of the whole idea of telling people what to do. Um, I've just never liked that idea, whether others telling me what to do or the idea of my telling others what to do. It's always seemed to me that people should be left to, to live their own lives in the, the way they see fit. Now, of course, one of the difficulties here is that uh, we inevitably find that some things that other people do are not just um, not for us, as it were, but also things that we might find distasteful or even uh, repugnant or ultimately even morally wrong. And then the problem is, what do you do about those cases? To what extent do you then use power to enforce a particular view about what is right? And my instinct was always that, well, that's not really a very good thing to try to do because what if others think that they're in the right? Uh, and simply asserting that you've got the right view seemed like a very, very unsatisfactory way of proceeding, in which case the only way to, to go, it seemed to me as a practical matter, is to, to talk it out. Uh, so I've never been persuaded by those who've got 
great moral theories that tell us what's right. Uh, I think they may be coherent, but they don't necessarily square with the way that other people think about the world. And so my attitude gradually became more and more to be one that emphasized the importance of toleration and dialogue rather than trying to figure out what's the right thing and then imposing it. Because you're fundamentally skeptical about there can be any agreement on what the right thing is or even finding out what the right thing is. Is that your thinking? Um, I think both things are very difficult. Uh, mm. And um, certainly finding agreement is very difficult because yes. it's difficult even to find the find the premises on which one would agree. So I think most theories that give you a pretty clear account of what the conclusions are have started off with premises that the, the advocates accept, but everybody else finds either mistaken or quite simply just question begging. You know, you, you prove that if P and Q then, uh, then you know, S, but you know, you've already asserted that P is true, uh, and anybody who you know doesn't yes. accept that um, is never going to uh, you know accept the conclusion, even if they accept the logic. One thing I've noticed about uh, your thinking, and this is in the liberal archipelago, that you say, and I quote here: "You say the human condition is one of conflicts. There is nothing in history that suggests that it's ever been otherwise. There's no plausible social theory that explains how it might ever be different in the future." So you see human beings, a conflict as an essential element of the human condition. I do. Um, and I think there are multiple reasons for this. Uh, one is that, quite simply, we all have different personalities. And uh, there are certain personalities in the world, and we've all come across people like this, um, for whom you know, impatience and aggression is a part of the way they are. It doesn't necessarily even mean that they're, they're bad people, but, you know, uh, there we have it. There are others who are also more likely to be timid. There are people who are easily swayed. So we've got multiple personalities. Um, and we've also got different interests and an inclination to see, you know, the way we interpret the world and and the things that are in, in our interests are somehow congruent. I, I don't see that as something that's very likely to change. We're very likely to see that what's good for us is good for everyone. Sometimes we may think that's not true and we just you know, are honestly going to say, well, I know this is bad for you, but this is what I want. But you know, given that we often have to give people better reasons than that, I think there's something in our nature that you know, tries to find a way of telling everybody else that this is going to be good for me, but it's going to be even better for you. I think almost every tyranny, no, almost every tyranny has said it's for it's for your book, it's for your good <laughs> every single yes, time. Yes, yes. <laughs> but uh, you know, I I think uh, you know every old brother has said it to a younger brother as well. I ask which where are you in the birth order of your family? I'm the oldest. Good. Uh, we have a lot of burden. Younger sisters. We carry a long burden. We older children, don't we? We we do. We do. Um, <laughs> I'm Rob Forsyth. This is a liberalism question. My guest today is Chandran Kukathas. You, you believe that freedom should be equal. People should be equally free, not for equal. One of the greatest arguments that's given for a strong state or state involvement, government involvement, is to help people to be equally free because power is not equal. How do you respond to that um, 
that critique of, of, of a small small government idea. So I think there are, I think there's a lot to that concern. I mean, we, mm. we are not equal. Uh, and uh, if we look at the, the social world, we'll find all kinds of uh, inequalities of power. Some of them derive from differences in our natural ability. Some of them derive from our uh, good fortune, um, perhaps in you know where we are born. Some of it derives from the ability of some people to game the system, you know, take advantage of the rules to their own advantage. And ultimately, there are people, um, both indiv individually and in concert with others, say as corporations or other institutions, who are able to change the rules to their advantage. And all the time, um, I think there is a tendency for, for inequality also to, uh, to manifest itself. On the other hand, there are also forces that work against uh, inequality because, you know, when one course of action looks like it's productive or advantageous, the tendency is for everyone to you know, jump on that bag wagon, do the same thing, produce the same goods that others want and so on. Uh, but at that point, the problem is that those who've got the, the starting advantage have a very, very strong interest in keeping people out, stopping them from joining in, stopping them from coming to yes. get a share of, uh, of the pie, so to speak. Um, and, you know, you just think about corporations, they spend a lot of their money making better products and a lot of their money trying to stop other people from the market. That's just yes. the way of the world. That's okay. So one reason why I think a lot of people think that what we need, therefore, is some authority to step in to sort all this out and equalize uh, is perfectly understandable. The problem is that it's not clear how we deal with the fact that all of those people who are taking advantage of uh, the way things are, are going to be equally adept, if not more adept, because they've got more resources, at using this additional power to their advantage. I don't see any reason why, let's say, the state won't be captured by these people uh, who will then use it to their advantage. Now, <clears throat> This is not to say that, okay, what we've got to do now is just get rid of the state. We can't get rid of it anymore than we can get rid of the weather. It's there. So the question for me then is, to what extent should we put our trust in this institution? And what, to what extent should we try to initiate reforms that break down and spread political power and economic power? And that's the way that I tend to look at the world. Uh, so I'm very wary of any proposal that says, okay, what we'll do is give one kind of source of power, greater authority, greater power to fix things in a way that's going to advantage everyone, which is not to say that, you know, um, every government is simply um, nakedly self-interested and nothing but. There are great differences uh, among governments across the world. And to the extent that there's any policy that's being pursued, I would say, let's look at it. Let's look at how it affects the worst off in society uh, and, you know, push for those that are going to you know, benefit the worst off in the long run. But as I say, I'm generally skeptical about this as a general strategy. It's, you know, it's a case of doing the best with what we've got, but not doing it in such a way that's going to increase the amount of power that's concentrated. I can see that, um... 
Chandra, that you're trying very hard, very hard not to be ideological, as it were, in these matters? Um, it's not so much that I'm trying not to be uh, ideological. Um, it's it's more that, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to turn around and say, well, look, liberalism is not an ideology. Um, you know, I don't think that gets you anywhere. If someone sees it as, as such, no. then you know, that's, the, uh, uh, that's, that's the end of it. But what I don't want to suggest is that we should start our thinking by saying, okay, this is the label I operate under. These are the fixed convictions that are under that label. And we're going to derive every bit of analysis yeah. we have from that uh, ideological position and repudiate or reject everything that comes from another uh, ideological view. If you present me of something else that's, you know, an ideology and say these are its arguments and conclusions, I would rather just question or, you know, um, and analyze them in their own terms rather than just say, well, that's just socialism, so I'm not going to think about it. Because, it, I mean, it could be argued, uh, thinking of the three, 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 three sources of central power which liberalism critiques, uh, as it were, crown and aristocracy, ecclesiastical authority, and the mercantile authority. And it's often been through the breaking up, not the breaking up of trust, the forcing of conditions and so forth upon the rampant capitalism of, of the 19th century that helped create much greater human flourishing. Do, do you think that's a just, that was all justified, the notion of the, of the state having to sense to make sure there is genuine competition and to try and break the mercantile class, which tends to, well, as you said, aggregate more and more power to itself? I, I think that would be too quick an analysis, right. uh, simply because I think the, the results have been mixed. Uh, on the one hand, states have broken up some forms of, uh, um, let's say, of monopoly, but not always um, to everyone's advantage, because if there are natural monopolies, that's not necessary to, to everyone's advantage. Sometimes they've, uh, they've broken up some powerful corporations, but really because they were goaded into it by other powerful corporations. Uh, so, you know, when you look at the fallout, you, you have to ask, well, has this been in the end to the advantage of, uh, of everyone or has it been disproportionately to the advantage of some other um, you know, corporate institutions? So to give you a, a kind of uh, practical example in the, in the area of uh, immigration reform um, in the United States, for example, um, in the 1990s under the, the Clinton administration, there were a number of uh, uh, steps taken to um, make sure that you know, certain corporations were not hiring uh, cheap labor uh, and uh, making profits off them. And in the in the in the end, a lot of those immigrant workers were were deported because they were found to be working illegally and so on. But the the imperative for this came from a number of other corporations who discovered that those companies were actually doing better than they were. Uh, and they themselves wanted immigrant labor, but they didn't want this company to have immigrant labor. So this was a way of getting rid of some of the competition. And then what they did was they petitioned Congress for a guest worker program so they could import their immigrant labor. Um, so yes, yes, on the one are. hand, the government took uh, apart a certain 
um, element of uh, you know corporate power, but really what was behind it was another side of corporate power. So I, I think one always has to look at you know different aspects of the uh, of be suspicious. Be, be suspicious, hopefully, to your motives. If I just shift yeah. the focus just a little, you've worked in the uh, United States, you know, Kingdom here. Um, you've seen a very wide range of different societies. I would ask, is, is liberalism will vary very much depending upon the cultural context in which it lives. Uh, you want to comment on that in your own experience, perhaps? It does. Um, and I think it's, it's partly because the, the, the liberal way of institutionalizing uh, politics is something I think that has spread right around the world. So you'll find it in places like Malaysia and Singapore, as well as in Australia and Great Britain and the United States. And I think this is because of the way essentially European ideas have spread around the world through a number of forces, some of them colonialism, some of them religion, because I think liberalism is something essentially that has its origins in, in Christianity. So you'll find um, liberal elements all around the world because the world in a, in a sense has evolved in a way that liberal political institutions are dominant. Look, think about the United Nations, the Declaration of Human Rights, the various um, treaties and uh, conventions that you'll find in, around the world. They're all written essentially in a liberal language. Um, they all emphasize the importance of the claims of the individual. Um, they all emphasize the importance of containing power. They all emphasize equality and so on. These are all liberal um, ideas. It's not that you won't find any hints of these in India or China or other parts of the world, but the formulation is, uh, is Western, it's European, it's Christian. So in any country that has uh, some of that heritage, you'll find a certain measure of liberalism. Even in Singapore, where in a sense liberalism is explicitly disavowed as a matter of public philosophy, they see themselves as more communitarian, if you like. But um, that liberal element is there. So it varies across the world, I think, both because um, there are differences of uh, political culture, there are differences of uh, religion and you know, communal ethic. Uh, and there are you know, differences of attitude to certain simple things like the relationships you have with, with parents or with authority or with um, those who um, have responsibility for you. If you this, think about this, Australia, in my, you know, at the end of every first class, my students, when I taught at the Defence Force Academy, would walk up to me and say, um, G'day, mate. Um, got a couple of questions for you. That would never happen in Singapore, nor would ever happen in the United States, but for different reasons. Uh, the, 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 the culture and informality in Australia is, is very different. I don't want to make too much of it, but it's, it spreads out into the rest of people's thinking. There is a kind of easier equality among people in Australia than there is in most places. Yes. There's much more formality in the United States, for example. On the other hand, in the United States, you have a liberalism that's also born out of a long history of struggle against slavery. And so the way in which people assert their rights uh, is very different 
and then you add to that the the mix or to the mix religion and people have a very different idea about where these rights come from than they do in australia australia is much more utilitarian uh, given what you've said it's clear that liberalism is not the natural state of humans we don't have a innate desire for freedom and if only we could remove all those other bad philosophies aside the natural liberalism would emerge I, that's a caricature, but I've sometimes heard that suggested. Um, even, to, even I think when a, certain wars are fought on the grounds to give people the freedom that they only could, if only remove these bad people, they, they, they would spring up naturally liberals. This is plainly a completely false idea of human beings. I, I think so. Uh, I mean, to the extent that you are simply looking at even just individuals, what their natural instincts are, um, can never be gauged because we all come into the world as children. We grow up to more or less of an extent in a family or an extended family. All the the instincts and intuitions we have are shaped uh, by that. Uh, And then we're we're born into a context in which we are regularly told what to do, in which case, you know, one of the things we're used to is being told what to do and telling others what to do. Now, I think that said, I suspect there is a kind of general instinct not to be confined, uh, not to be pushed around, mm-hmm. not to be the victim of violence. So there is something in us that naturally pushes against that. We have a capacity for resentment, but that's not enough on its own to generate uh, liberalism. It could just oh, okay. generate uh, you know, strong norms of uh, um, social and political authority. And, and, and terror. <laughs> the terror. Um, if you're right, liberalism has, has, has its competitors today in the world. I can think of at least two, maybe probably many more, actually. Um, and some countries like the People's Republic of China are explicitly saying they have another model. And mm-hmm. I, I doubt whether certain religious countries, strongly with strong religious forces, thinking of Islamic countries, perhaps some Buddhist countries, would, would, they would not in any sense regard liberalism as a viable option for them. In other words, liberalism is and remains contested in the world. Yes. Have you any thoughts about whether you think it has a future? I, I think all I can say is that I, I hope it does. Um, the reason I wouldn't say more is that the, the history of the world is not a, a history of the triumphal march of liberalism, which is, after all, a relatively recent um, phenomenon. Yes. Uh, more often than not, what we've seen in human history is uh, uh, powerful political authorities, leaders, um, or elites managing things to their own advantage. Uh, and uh, the, the population at large is to, you know, more or less um, of a degree, the, you know, the source of the rents that they can extract. Um, so... I hope that this isn't all of our future, but you know I can't help but um, imagine that there will always be a certain element of this. At the same time, though, I think there are in you know all of the traditions you've mentioned elements, you know, both practically and philosophically, that push against this. So you mentioned China, for example. I mean, the existing government of China is very strongly anti-liberal. Um, I don't know that that's the attitude of the population, except to the extent that they've been fed uh, a story about the dangers of not having 
strong, purposeful, um, you know, elite rule. But there is in the Chinese tradition both, uh, you know, the the authoritarian version of Confucianism, but also the the Taoist tradition, which is much more skeptical about authority, much more skeptical about not just political authority, but um, of uh, uh, of all kinds of confining institutions. I would hope uh, that those sorts of you know attitudes, which have uh, you know that imagine freer ways of being, will somehow you know um, come to the fore particularly as people get more prosperous and so on. Similarly, in, uh, in Islam, I mean, you know, we've got very authoritarian forms of the doctrine, but we've also got the Sufi tradition, which is much more mystical, much less authoritarian, um, which sees the world, you know, very differently. And of course, has been subject yes. to uh, violent and critical attack. And you can say the same again in India, even if you just compare that, the two traditions uh, embodied in the Mahabharata on the one hand and the Ramayana on the other. If you look at the character of Krishna, you have a much more, you know, um, playful and lighthearted character. If you look at Rama, then, you know, you've got a much more serious fellow who has his wife march across burning coals to prove her fidelity, never thinking for a minute that she might ask him to do the same. <laughs> Uh, you know, all these traditions have these different uh, different elements, and I there is. So you're saying, in some sense, in fact, perhaps it's the very diversity you think will always exist in the world is giving you some sorts of hope that the authoritarians can never tie everything down. They, they will uh, never do that. I think the worry, though, still is that um, they might do uh, an enormous amount of uh, damage, and I think this is particularly a worry in the in the modern world in a way that I think it wasn't in the ancient, you know, partly because the capacity of uh, states, political authorities to control the ordinary population was very limited. I mean, the, the Roman emperors could act pretty uh, viciously and harshly on the, the Roman elites, but much, much less so on the everyday population, except to the extent to which they could they could tax and extract you know benefit and so on from them. But now we live in a world in which you know every state can pinpoint your uh, your position, both geographically if they want to, but also um, in terms of your social life to a very high degree of precision, which gives them a much greater power yes. coming yes. from their capacity for surveillance and you know they don't need to uh, find tax farmers to get some money off you it, it all goes out of your pay packet you know whether you like it or not yes yes That's does this mean world, I think. yes I, I take your point i take your point and it is alarming i think it is alarming um as we draw this discussion to an end can i ask you does this mean that in fact liberalism needs more champions that there's a way in which liberals tend on the whole to be fairly relaxed about freedom. And I wonder whether both in the West, where there are some challenges from what's usually called, loosely called identity politics, I, we can't open that door today. But, but in the world itself, it's so very much contested. Does it need, it, does it need more champions? Do we, do we need to take it less, uh, less for granted and stand up for it? I think so. Um, I mean, that's essentially um, what I do in my professional life. That's what I see myself as uh, 
as concerned with uh, being an advocate for this way of thinking, but <laughs> not so much by trying to simply um, be an advocate of already existing ideas, but more by you know, thinking about the, the nature of the, the ideas, uh, the applicability to the new world, um, and how they might need to be restated for a modern audience, restated in a way that addresses um, the nature of the modern world. So that's what I see myself as doing. But there are, you know, there are lots of other ways of doing it. I think CIS has been, to my mind, one of the great champions of liberalism in Australia, you know, since, well, since Greg Lindsay founded it back in, I think, 1976. Um, and I've always been very happy to, to be a contributor to that exercise. Well, that's very kind of you. And we want I thank you very much for your time, valuable as it is, and, and for your insights. It's been very helpful indeed. I've been speaking with Chandran Kukathas, who's uh, the Lee Kong Chang Chair in Political Science and Dean of Students of so in Social Science at the Singapore Management University. And we've been speaking together on the questions around liberalism. This has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.